welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's storyteller is Dr. Gary Trubel. He's a microbiologist interested in the ecology of viruses, in particular in soil environments, and he's currently doing his postdoc at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California. So we talk about his research in rainforest soils in Puerto Rico and also in permafrost, and I ask him whether viruses are considered to be alive or not, which is apparently a very contentious issue, and I opened a Pandora's box with that one. He's also working to get viruses included in the search for life in outer space. This is all out of my wheelhouse, so I ask a lot of probably very ridiculous questions, which is totally in my wheelhouse, so enjoy. So I, I love that you're doing this. This is really cool. Oh, thanks. Uh, it's a lot of fun for me because I get to talk to all kinds of cool people. <laughs> so, yeah, because I'm, I'm actually a wetland scientist. Um, cool. Yeah. Since I did my PhD, um, my work is in wetlands in northern Sweden. And, it was, and that was super cool. And one of my projects now is with a wetland. And they're near and dear to my heart because they're so important, right? So that's a cool thing to be studying. Yeah, but you do more like viruses work, right? So are you doing soil within the wetlands and looking for stuff there? Is that what you were doing? That's exactly right. So the wetland ecosystem I studied before was kind of a hybrid. Um, it was a mosaic of different environments together. So it was in northern Sweden along the permafrost, natural permafrost thaw gradient. So we had pulses, which are these kind of dry soils that are like 99% plants, right? And then the permafrost begins to thaw, and then we go into the bog. And it's not thermal karst there. It's just natural decline. When I say natural, I mean natural and human cause, right? So natural in terms of it's slower, not these huge drops. <laughs> and then they fully thaw into these thin wetland ecosystems that produce a ton of methane. So yeah, and I studied how the viruses can help expedite the carbon loss. Um, really, how are they controlling it? Because what I've learned, everything participates, right? So you can argue that nothing is more important than the other. But to me, the microbes are the most important part, and then the vegetation, because the vegetation helps determine what microbes will be there as well. And we had no clue what the viruses were doing. We saw more and more evidence that the viruses are actually controlling a lot of the microbial carbon processing. The variation by year that we see from microbes that we're trying to hone in on, I think is largely caused by viruses. So if we included viruses, we might be able to better explain this variation. And that's what we kept seeing. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, my experience yeah. with wetland soils is taking soil cores for like physical properties, sort of like bulk density and things like that. Yep. And I don't think that they do anything beyond, you know, stuff like that. So. That's interesting. It's interesting to think about a system I know so well, or at least, at least like semi-familiar with, you know, because I've not been to Northern Sweden, but you know, wetlands have things in common and it's interesting to think about it. Yeah, I mean, like you could, you could kind of create a, a Venn diagram for things wetlands have in common no matter where they are. And things are, is, you know, they're these rich nutrient environments, right? They're the, they, support these large ecosystems and diversity. They clean up the water. I mean, that's how we use them. We use them as tertiary cleanup, right? So I, these are things that all wetlands have in common. And a lot of times they're dominated by these specialty plants that don't necessarily grow everywhere else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a lot of my work is like with the plants themselves and also the hydrology of just the system. And I don't know, but maybe it also impacts the viruses. I have no idea. <laughs> it definitely does. So a lot of times when I look at the ecology of viruses, we look for environmental drivers. So looking at the bulk density, looking at the nitrate content or something is really going to drive the viral communities in the composition. Oh, that's interesting. I feel like I'm going to ask this question wrong, but I, you said ecology of viruses, and can you just sort of like elaborate on that? Because when I think ecology, I mean, I think bigger, I guess, just because my background's in wildlife. And so uh, I'm intrigued by the, that phrase you said. That's actually my favorite thing about viruses is studying their ecology. You can think of ecology at it as its base core of what it means, like the interaction with the virus and the environment around it. So there's people that specialize in different areas. There's a few scientists, which I think is phenomenal that they do virus-virus interactions. So they're looking at that ecology. And this can, and this is not like other organisms where you think, hey, you have microbe A and microbe B. We can interact 
the uh, competition. We can interact via mutualism, right? Uh, you know, you can think of that fight. But with viruses, it's also a little different. It's not typically a virus particle interacting with another virus particle. It's that I'm infecting this host. And if you're trying to infect this host, I can stop you or we can join forces, right? So th those are tricky. And that's one way. The way I look at it when I think of viral ecology is you have this virus and you want to know what it's doing. You're just characterizing a day in the life of a virus, right? So I'm looking at who it's infecting, how broad the host range is. Viruses are usually host specific. When they're infecting the host, how are they changing their, their ecosystem with their host? We always thought viruses just kill, right? And there's these hypotheses out there like kill the winner, where whatever the most dominant microbial population is, the viruses will kill that one and bring it down. And so in this way, they keep microbial diversity because there's not one microbe that gets better than the rest. But we also think about the other things it's doing. So when they kill that host, they're also release, releasing the juicy innards, the necromass into the environment. So imagine if you're a microbe and you're starving because you're just in this peat and there's all this stuff that's hard to break down. Then you just had this delicious gift over here where this microbe exploded and you're like, ah, yes, carbon, nitrogen, love it. This is wonderful, right? And then you have more waste, which is actually what's becoming very cool now is viruses will carry these genes that they acquired from a previous host infection. And we call these auxiliary metabolic genes. And these are extra functions that a virus can augment its host metabolism to do. So it's not necessarily giving genetic novelty to the host, but it's augmenting a current pathway. The famous example that we learned in the oceans is viruses will carry genes for photosynthesis. Now you're like, why would it ever do that? Virus, just having extra genes on its genome makes it bigger and this is just a waste of a virus's life. Well, when it infects a cyanobacteria in the ocean, the bottleneck in that pathway is actually the photosystem two core that's part of photosynthesis, right? So the virus, many different genes have been found, but the virus typically will carry PSBA and PSBD. And when they infect the host, they'll stop the host metabolism, redirect it, and express these genes using the host metabolism. So the host will actually be able to do photosynthesis more efficiently. Wow. Yeah. So there, this is all like rough calculations and it goes each other way. But there's the idea that 50% of our oxygen comes from cyanobacteria in the ocean. And half of those 50%, so fourth of all the world's oxygen is produced because of viral infections. That, that's the thought, right? You, you'll see like a fourth, a fifth. I think I've seen as low as an eighth, but it's, it's there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because normally we think about like things that produce oxygen. You think about like trees, I guess. You mm -hmm. know? <laughs> don't ever think about cyanobacteria and all of that. Oh, and that, that's actually something that's been well studied, that cyanobacteria are major players in oxygen production. That's why when people talk about if we lose our forests, right? we only are losing one lung, right? We have a lot in the ocean. But at the same time, if we're only focused on the forest and we don't care about ocean acidification, changes in the ocean, we could possibly lose our other lung. So it, we definitely got to be taking care of everything. <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, we, we should be anyway, but that's also a really good point. Um, okay, it's been like five minutes and you've already blown my mind, which is awesome. <laughs> So I have another potentially uninformed question. Where do viruses live like in a wetland soil? Because I think of soil as being sort of abiotic unless you've got like, I guess, organic material. Like I don't think of, you know, clay or whatever as being biotic, but obviously there's viruses in there somewhere. So you're, you're exactly right. Soil itself is abiotic, right? I mean, it's structure, right? And this is why soils are so difficult to study is they're structured. It, what makes it hard is we think about it from this large point of view. If you think about microbes and viruses and soils, you have to think of it like a landscape for us, like a city. And they have to navigate through this. And microbes have pili and other ways that they can move. And then wetlands, it's even more different than it would be anywhere else because it's potentially inundated, right? You have this water that's just everywhere. So for viruses, 
they don't have flagella. They don't have these pili. They don't have any anything that could possibly help them connect to anything, move, or anything like that, right? So most of their movement is thought by just Brownian motion. And this is easy to grasp in the oceans where we have current and viruses are just moved, shuttled along. Now yeah. in soils, my idea of trying to grasp a day in the life of a virus is this is a this is a clay particle. Um, this is a virus. We're there, right? And this is what makes it so tricky, especially for certain types of viruses. So I want to just go on this side tangent because I think this will help inform what we're talking about. Okay. A virus has many ways in which they can infect their host. The two main ways that I'm thinking about here are we have the capsid and the virus has some sort of membrane or it doesn't have to have a membrane. And the capsid attaches to the organism and is able to open up the organism and go inside the organism. So we have the whole virus and this capsid going in, or if it has a membrane, sometimes it fuses with the membrane of whatever it's infecting and it comes inside, right? So you have the capsid inside. Now phage, bacteriophage, which are viruses that only infect bacteria, they have these tails and they also don't have to have these tails, but these ones I like, they have tails, right? It's kind of like a moon lander or something. They have to land on the bacterium. They like cling in with their little spikes. It's a locking key where it fits into the protein, opens it up, and they inject like a syringe their nucleic acid into the bacterial host. Uh-huh. Now, when it's in the bacterial host, this DNA or RNA, this nucleic acid, is self-sufficient. It just starts working, Right. So it, it starts redirecting host metabolism, and shutting it down immediately. This is like the first thing it does and kind of just takes over. So if you think about that in a soil, if you think about the morphology, this is what I want to get into, it has to attach like a syringe right onto the bacteria. In soils, we also have to deal with uh, this idea of entombment where pore sizes get small and a virus can fit in there, but a bacterium can't necessarily fit in there. So if a virus gets entrapped in this small pore size, how does it ever infect a host? So does it just persist? This is just interesting to think about. How are we having all these viral infections? We see lots of viruses. We know that they're doing stuff. They have to have adapted some way to get to their host. And what we've learned more recently, but this has been going on for a decade now, this it's called fission making. We like to personify viruses where they can go between their normal cycle, which is called the lytic cycle, where they kill the host, and then the lysogenic cycle, which is when they're integrated. And we see that they can adapt the quorum sensing of their host and help make peptides that attach onto it. And when another host reads these peptides, which is a closely related host, which the virus could potentially infect, if that host has a virus in it, it recognizes the signal that the virus sent. So they're thinking that the coordinated attack. But to be honest, we don't we don't know. We don't know how they're interacting. And your your original question is where are they living? Well, they're living in the soil somewhere, or they're living in the host. But yeah, there's just so much unknown. We just don't know. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, I take a lot of soil cores and I never really think about what might be living in the soil. I'm just like, oh, all right, I've done my measurements and I move on. And there, there's a lot of organisms, right? There's fungi, there's bacteria, there's different protists, if you like that word, amoebas. And, I mean, soil is just super complex and there's everything going on. And that presents another challenge because it's how do we access these viruses? And that's what we've been pushing to do over the last, 10 years as well, is the, the, the most robust way so far is just collecting all of the DNA from the environment. And as you can imagine, I just said there's a lot in the environment, right? And you can also have things that died before and their DNA is persisting in the environment. So when you're sampling soil for DNA or RNA even, we get so much and a lot of it is nonsense because with metagenomics, we have to sample all of it. And then we have to use computer algorithms to reassemble it all into these contexts or these short strands of DNA, right? And then we have to bring those together to form microbes or viruses. And we end up losing a lot of this information because it's just too complex. There's just so much going on. So the, the way we've been trying to get around this is just 
making the ecosystem less complex. And you can do this by filtering your sample first. And this is what's called a viral metagenome or a virome. And that allows you to only extract nucleic acid from things of virus size, right? So this would be ultra small bacteria, viruses, all these little mobile genetic elements that are of that size. Um, another way that I've been doing more recently is I've been labeling the soil first with uh, different isotopes, stable isotopes. So I'll use what we call heavy water, which is H2-18O instead of 16O. We dry a soil out. We add a sufficient amount of this water. Anything that is active has to use that water because water is the universal ingredient for life, right? So it uses it. Now, the 18O gets incorporated in the DNA of whatever uses it. So when we extract all of this DNA, we can separate it based on density. And the DNA that has 18O in it versus 16O is more dense. So we can collect that layer. So we only collect the DNA of what's active in the soil. So this increases our resolution because all of the other nonsense that we can characterize goes away which means it's less complex now. And there's pros and cons with this. I mean, the con would be you technically want to measure everything that's there because that's the potential, that's the genetic repertoire, right? But at the same time, once you have it done, you want to just know who is there and you want to better, better characterize that. But then you also have to make sure you don't just do it once because that's a snapshot in time. It's just making the, the system less complex so we can look at these viruses and figure out what they're doing. So I guess the way to... Um, translate this to people, say you're going to a wetland ecosystem and you're really wanting to measure some of the soil properties. Well, imagine trying to measure the soil and the water and the air at the same time, right? You want to divvy that up and you have specific tools for certain things. You'll have, like you, ha you do have ones that can do a lot, right? We've become sophisticated. But if you're wanting to measure um, porosity or if you're wanting to measure air temperature or ground temperature or pH or something, you have a special tool for this. And you usually have to treat the sample in some way or process it. And it was just difficult to just do it all at once. If I just grabbed a big bucket of soil and water and air and plant material and just threw it together and you try to take all those measurements at once, it'd be difficult. So that's essentially what we're doing is we're, we're breaking this, this huge thing, we're just collecting all this DNA into parts. Okay, so you said a lot of things there, but my, I'm going to go backwards. I've never heard of heavy water, and I find that uh, intriguing. If I understood you correctly, it's like heavier oxygen. It's 18 and 16 so it's got two additional neutrons. So it's got more mass, but they're inert, so they don't do anything. Okay, but it's like a tracking thing, right? That's how you figured out like what exactly. was Interesting. Okay. And when you look up, it can be confusing because traditionally heavy water uh, meant that you use the terium, so you use the heavier hydrogen versus oxygen, and that's what was done first. The reason why we use heavier oxygen is because it doesn't have a negative impact that we've measured on organisms. With hydrogen, you can. Okay, that makes sense. So I like heavy water because that labels everything that's active, right? So you can look at that. Now, at a field site I'm working at in Puerto Rico, we, it's a tropical rainforest soil. A lot of people don't know that Puerto Rico has a tropical rainforest and it's the only tropical rainforest in the United States. Uh, tropical rainforests can also have peat, but that's a different topic for another day. Uh, so here we're studying these soils and these soils are so interesting because they go through the dynamic redox conditions where it can just flood and it's anoxic and then it's dry. And you, and you think, how do these microbes survive this? If you need oxygen, you can't survive when it's totally anoxic and, and vice versa, right? So this is what we're trying to understand. And this, this redox conditions help determine the fate of this organic carbon in these soils. So we were trying to measure under four different redox conditions that we made, which is always oxic, always anoxic, a light fluctuation where it's a couple days anoxic and then a couple days oxic, and then a long pair of anoxic versus oxic. So we did this huge project with this, and we were focusing on the fate of the carbon, right? So instead of labeling all of the active organisms, we actually used 13C enriched plant biomass 
we added that to the soil to incubate. So anything that was specifically eating the plant biomass, breaking it down to release that carbon, was getting labeled with 13C. So instead of using watering, labeling everything, we're specifically labeling the organisms responsible for breaking down the carbon or the plant biomass to release carbon potentially. So since viruses infect microbes, and this works for all isotopes, they get labeled as well. When a virus comes in to infect the host organism, it will use some of the host organism's material, but it uses the host to pull out nutrients from outside. So all of the new viruses made will be labeled. The isotope stuff is so cool. Like, it's so cool how you can track where it's come from. Like, I know they they do it a lot with animals. Like, you can see where this animal was at when it grew this feather based on the isotopes and stuff. I don't know how people figured that out, but it's fascinating. Like, my mind just is just continuously expanding when I hear this. I'm like, what? And you, to wrap your head around it, I think of it as like a collar or something. We're tracking these microbes and their viruses by labeling them. Or another way I think of it is that you have a Tootsie Roll, and these are like different flavors of Tootsie Rolls, like the lemon or the green one or the red one. I don't even know what the flavors are. The colors is how I refer to them. As yeah. right. And so you can tell um, different, you can look at different things specifically. And this, this is what I'm super interested in. The first project that we're working on here that's using heavy water. These, this is in Alaska. This is Bonanza Creek experimental um, station. And we're looking at thermocarst bog. So this bog is thermocarst, right? Which means that we have this, this drop in the melting of the ice that is caused from the permafrost thaw. Permafrost okay. is everything that's frozen, right? And it's two more consecutive years. So this ground is frozen. So like a chicken, when it warms up, if you're a meat eater, sorry if you're not, but it thaws and it, the chicken doesn't melt. It's not changing its phase state, right? The ice in it is melting, which is causing a change. So we think of the permafrost as thawing because it's the ground, but the ice within it's melting as well. Now, it's thermocarst if you have these big pockets of ice mm. and they melt and they cause this huge ground collapse. And when I say huge, like I'm thinking from a microbe, right? For us, it's like they drop maybe a foot or something, but you can get different shapes and stuff from that. So this really affects the ecosystem, right? Because you are above water and it's dry. If there's a lot of ice and it melts, the ground collapses and now it's flooded as well. So you now have this potentially anoxic or semi-anoxic ecosystem here, right? So you have these huge changes. Now here, we took from a bog and bogs are tricky because they usually have what's called sphagnum moss, mm -hmm. which produces this galactogronic acid and this limits the growth of a lot of microbes. So the select microbes that live there, but the ones that can live there can flourish. Typically, you'll see acidobacteria um, that grows there, and it can deal with this low pH that this galactochronic acid creates. So yeah, that, that's what we were studying. We were pressing the water out of it, adding heavy water and incubating that. And we incubated that for a full year because we thought this is really cold environment. Microbes are going to be growing slow. We especially wanted to study it under winter conditions. So during the summer, when it gets warmer, you'll have the top layer of permafrost thaw. And this is called the active layer. And this seasonally thaws every summer. But during the winter, it's completely frozen. Sometimes you have snow packed on top. It can be a foot or more, or a meter even. So we collected this soil, pressed the water out, added heavy water, incubate it, flush it with nitrogen to make it anoxic, and then we stored it for a year at negative 1.5 Celsius. And we sampled half them at a half a year and the other half at a full year to see who was active. And we wanted to do it for a long time in case they were so slow because we need to take in a lot of this heavy water. That way we can actually separate their DNA. Because if you imagine if they're super slow, and these are some of the caveats with this approach, if they're super slow growing and they're not incorporating a lot of the isotope, then they're not going to be dense enough. So we actually have to take many fractions in the density layer and then tease out what's active and what's not active. So that's, that, that's one of the tricky ones. So we, that's our first project, right? And then our second project is in um, Puerto Rico, and this is the tropical rainforest. And these are just soils, right? that experience these redox conditions because you can have 
rain events, you can have hurricanes, you can have everything coming, all these disturbances that come in. And here we were really caring about the fate of this organic carbon. We knew that these are amazing conditions to live in, right? Because there's food everywhere and stuff, right? But are they because the regox conditions? So this we incubated for 40 days with plant, with the only carbon source was this 13 seed rich plant biomass. And then okay. we sampled that. All right, I got it now. I had it all confused in my head. <laughs> I liked your chicken thawing analogy because, yeah, you're right. The chicken doesn't just melt into a puddle because <laughs> it thawed. So that's interesting. It was a good visual, I mean, to understand what's happening. So the DNA that's like in the soil, is that where this whole field of like eDNA comes from? Is that all using that? So eDNA, this is, um, and it has so many applications, right? The first part is when a microbe dies, it has its necromass, right? You can think of it that way, that the DNA fits into one of these small pore spaces like we were talking about and gets entombed. And then we know for like bog habitats that things can get preserved. There's the bog person, right? That the person got preserved. You can find animal carcasses and stuff that's preserved, right? Um, so you get the DNA and this happens a lot in soils that we, it can be called relic DNA that it's just languishing in the soil. They'll call it ancient DNA as well, too. So many different terms. It just means we have DNA. Uh, it's usually highly degraded. Maybe not sometimes. I think it depends on your environment and what's going on. Um, but it's just there. So when you're sampling, you're describing these microbes there, and, and they may not even be there. It may have been there a long time ago. So this is something to think about. Now, this eDNA is just not wasted, though. It can be a nutrient source. Uh, eDNA is actually pushed out of microbes on purpose. Sorry, I'm just going to DNA. This DNA is pushed out on purpose because it's used in biofilms. You'll find DNA in biofilms. You'll find it in vesicles. You'll find it in a lot of different places. And sometimes it's intentional and sometimes it's not. That's really fascinating. Yeah, I've only just heard about it. I, I like to just scan job boards to see what kind of jobs are out there. And there's a lot of wildlife work with the eDNA. And I was like, what is this? And so I only just heard about it. So yeah, that's just so fascinating. So many, so many things to learn. Okay, so you sort of alluded to this in our messages back and forth. So I have a question for you. Do we, in a consensus, consider viruses to be alive or no? I assume that there's a debate about this. <laughs> There is. I mean, this is probably the one of the bigger debates in viruses. And like, I don't like to talk about it so much just because people get personal with it, right? I think the problem is there's not a consensus on what is life. Like we That's think right. there is, but there's yeah. not. And it's easy. You might think, oh, I can tell you what life is. That's life. That's life. This is not life. But mm -hmm. to, in order to determine if something's alive, you have to be able to definitively say something is not alive, right? Yeah. And that's where tricky as well. And so when we start thinking about viruses, prions, and other things, it becomes super difficult. Yeah, so the reason I ask that question is because I feel like sometimes there's things within a field that there is a consensus on, but that if you're not in that field, like maybe you wouldn't know that there's actually a consensus. So I was curious if that was a thing that there was a consensus on within the field or not. But I can totally see how that somewhere that line's gonna be blurry and you're never gonna, it's gonna be hard to figure out. The hardest thing I think too is unfortunately in science there's a lot of egos. I mean, no one wants to be wrong. Admitting you're wrong is so hard. And you don't wanna think you're wrong because we all work so hard to learn something. So to be able not to know something, you're like, oh, that's, that's embarrassing. And then a lot of people will just keep going around about. But the reality is, we have not studied viruses enough. Okay, so let's just start at the beginning real quick, how I think about it. When we were first thinking about what is life, this is the age-old question a long time ago, like what is life? Now, if we think back into the 50s, when we were trying to figure out when you have a child, when your traits are passed on, how does that happen? We used viruses for these studies because viruses were largely considered alive. So these studies back in the 50s, we had come to the conclusion that we thought it was either nucleic acid, either DNA or RNA, likely DNA, or it was proteins. And there was, it was about 50-50. A lot of people thought it was definitely proteins. And w why not? It's the end product, right? They're the ones doing these reactions, right? So they used viruses, and they labeled the viruses 
with radiophosphate, 32 phosphates, right? And they wanted to see what passed heredity down. And their studies showed that it was DNA. And this is when we found out it was DNA. So for life, we used viruses to show the DNA passed heredity. So viruses were alive, right? And there was def- I bet you there's definitely people at the time that didn't think so. When we read old papers or history books and stuff, we read it one way and we imagine the world was perfect and there was no arguments, right? That's definitely not how it happened. So there's that. that. I think that's something always to think about. And then going back and forth, uh, undetermined what is life. Then when Carl Rose really looked at the 6ness RNA gene and really started defining phylogeny for life based on that, that was probably one of the biggest changes, arguably, I'm going to say it though, biggest changes in science and in biology. For the first time, we could really bridge all life together and not based on the phenotype, right? Not on how they looked or morphology or anything like that, right? This is this is at their core. This is their, their DNA. This is what made them who they were, right? So we could do that. The problem is viruses were so complex and they didn't necessarily have this universal marker gene that we just left them out. So we now changed our view for some people on what life is based on this, this card, this ID that said, hey, I have to have this gene. So if you don't have this gene, you're not life. And that, that's also a little frustrating um, because then I guess what NASA does instead, and this is something I've been trying to work on a lot with them, is uh, they use certain traits to determine what is life. Like, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you propagate? Do you become complex? Do you evolve? Like, what are these different things? And if you look at it, viruses do almost everything. The big one that they're missing is self-replication. They require something else to replicate. Now, this is when the water gets super gray. They now have become not alive, right? But then you have parasites that require other things to live that are considered alive because uh-huh. they also have a 16S or 18S. They have this, this uh, universal gene, right? So it's just, so like some of the things I try to teach people on is first they say they're too small, but now there's ultra small bacteria that viruses can be larger. Then they say, oh, they don't have our RNA um, proteins and all this other stuff. Well, we've now found these giant viruses, right? Oh, they don't have these systems. Well, we found these giant viruses more recently that have this, right? We keep finding new things that viruses have. At what point are we just going to say, okay, come on, what's happening here? Um, and then you can think of we have these parasitic, these uh, obligate parasitic bacteria that only survive with their host. They cannot survive without their host. We also have this new candidate phylum radiation. I, I don't know if you know about this. This is kind of niche specialty or niche, if people like to say. <laughs> uh, these are these, these ultra small microbes that we're finding everywhere that a lot of them or all of them, I'm not like an expert on this, but based on what I've read is that they kind of have this symbiotic relationship where they, they work as a community in order to thrive. They have reduced genomes in order to get by. So they have to rely on other hosts, other bacteria, other microbes in order to complete pathways. Because they have a 16S RNA gene, they're on the tree of life that we have. But what, what can a virus in them do that's different? It's exactly the same. They can have the same size genomes, the same size complexity, like everything. But one has this card and the other doesn't. Yeah. So it's life. <laughs> so I, I know when yeah. I... Complicated. When I think, are they alive or not? I, I think it's semantics. And we, it's, it's not so important. Like, I think it's important on the quest to hunt for life to think about it, right? Because if I went to another planet and sampled... If I found a microbe, we would all argue, okay, that's a bacteria and we found life. Now, how would it be if I found a virus? Yeah. Whether you believe it's life or not, you just got excited though. You thought, hey, I definitely want to keep looking there. We're not going to just say, right, this is, this is phosphine or this is, I mean, that's, that's exciting stuff, right? But it, it uh-huh. shoots the potential like, hey, we should be studying there. No, if we found viruses, that would go to the top of the list. We need to study there. Because we know viruses need a host. 
So it's not like we found this other biosignature. This would be the ultimate biosignature, right? Because it would say, we definitely sample that we're going to find something. So I think it, when you're asking a virus's life, it depends on the question you're asking. And they're so intertwined with life. It's impossible to describe and characterize life, or just characterize life, without a virus. And when I read studies, not to be that person, we all do that with our field, but they're like, hey, this could do this. And I'm thinking, well, what's the virus doing? What, what, how's the virus doing in that? And there's so many different implications for what viruses can do, right? And so I think that we need to study viruses more, that they're definitely understudied because there's such a diversity of viruses out there. And the only organism that, or so the only biological entity that has all four types of nucleic acid. And when I say four types, I'm talking about RNA or DNA, single or double-stranded. So I'm pushing that when we're looking for life, we should be looking for viruses because it has every form of nucleic acid. So that's important because we, we have this assumption that when we go elsewhere, we're going to look for life that's going to look just like us, which we don't know. Yeah, so we, we should think that. as, exactly. So we should think as diverse as possible. And that's when we bring in viruses, right? Um, there's also so many different ways we can detect viruses and their proteins. Their different protein folds are unique. So th these are biosignatures in themselves in different ways. So I, I've been pushing for more research for viruses, uh, more instrument development to look at viruses and not just look past viruses. Yeah, I opened a can of worms there, didn't I? <laughs> you, you said, sorry, I, I get a little, I get, yeah, because people are just so strong in their opinions about it. And there, there are times in which it matters, but it's like it's brought up for an argument and I just don't understand. I totally get it. I was just curious. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about the search for life and viruses and instruments and stuff. So on a logistical scale, I'm curious if the instruments that you use to search for like bacteria or whatever can also find viruses because I just have no idea. Or what if you think about it from a different route where by using the instrument to look at viruses and measure microbes infected with viruses, you can actually more readily detect life. Ah, yeah. So um, one thing I'll talk about real quick with isotopes because I love them is we can measure gases, for instance, and they have an isotopic um, reading and based on that we can determine what organism created it whether it's abiotic or biotic what pathway even so one of my favorite ones is methanogenesis which is the production of methane in my swedish habitat i was telling you about in the bog it's more hydrogenotrophic methanogenesis right and when you measure this gas it's highly depleted for in the methane so then you're looking at a signature of negative 80 per mil. And then if you go to the fen, it's more acetoclastic that is being produced. And this is highly enriched compared to hydronotrophic. So it's negative 60 per mil. So when you just measure methane, if you see it's closer to negative 60 or negative 80, you can tell what the dominant pathway that's going on there. Based on the dominant pathway, you know what they're using. Are they using acetate? Oh, they're not using acetate. Are they producing hydrogen? Are they using hydrogen? We don't. This is what you can tell from measuring that. So just by measuring, you can get a consensus of what's going on in the ecosystem without disturbing the ecosystem. Like that's, that's just great science. I don't have to destroy the ground. I don't have to hurt anything that's going on, but I can measure the gas and figure out what, what they're doing and characterize them. So just laying the foundation there. Now, we have that they can go in between. So if, it's, uh, if something is produced abiotically, it's usually more enriched. And the reason why we have this enrichment or depletion is because life likes to choose the lighter isotope for anything. So we can use this um, for gases. I know it's used for denitrification. With denitrification, by measuring it, you can tell if it's produced by a fungi versus a bacterium. You can tell if it's abiotic or biotic. So we can measure gases and tell this. So this is important. If we're going to another planet, we don't have to construct this rover that has to land because that's so hard to land and then have energy to leave. So imagine just being able to go and sample some of the headspace or the atmosphere, right? And then determine if life could be there. It could help narrow down our search. So this is the goal. 
The problem is it's not as clear cut as I said, where it's exactly negative 60, exactly negative 80. You have the spectrum and it's because it depends on the conditions of the organism. It depends on what genes are involved. Different genes will cleave differently, right? So I think part of that has to do with viruses. We talked about these auxiliary metabolic genes earlier, right? So it's a host-derived gene. So for photosynthesis, just using this as an example, right? So this is not anything that's been found. But they'll have like this PSBA, PSBD gene, right? So imagine that these could be more efficient than the host version. So it's going to be creating a different isotopic fractionation signature when these genes are cleaving. So you're going to have an overall net, if there was gas that was coming out, a, a net difference. So instead of negative 60, which is not related to photosynthesis at all, it could be like negative 65. So it helps explain that variation in the isotopic signature. So I think we need to start doing more experiments where we have a gas of potential, we grow the host, and it varies by host, and it varies by taxonomy, right? Infect it with the virus and see that variation. That way we can constrain and better understand these biosignatures. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's one way studying viruses. We can help look for life, even if we don't consider viruses life, because they impact life. Uh, you're talking about how can looking at viruses maybe help looking for microbes? Well, some of the methods that we use are going to be like transmission electron microscopy, TEM. And to look at this on a virus size, we have to use special techniques to really get down and get resolution on the virus scale. Now, imagine because the environment's hostile or hard that you have these microbes with reduced genomes that are really small. By looking at viruses, we now can look at that scale, the nanoscale, which we know microbes survive. We know there's ultra small microbes out there. And what if when they are out there, they are ultra small only. So if we have this idea of looking for a certain size that's excluding smaller ones because we're not looking for viruses, we're missing those ultra small microbes. So that, that's just one way right there which we could find life by trying to look for viruses. Now, another way is by using our instruments and fine-tuning them to increase our resolution on viruses, that's going to help us look and get a better picture for microbes themselves. Because they're different, right, so this will have to make us adjust our tunings because they're smaller. So by just look, by setting these and looking for viruses, we can help look for microbes. Now, not everything's going to be the same, right? Viruses are these proteinaceous capsids, right? Microbes are not, right? So there's certain things if you're looking just for proteins that are not going to help out. But a lot of things, it's the same goal. One of the things I thought about while you're saying that is like it almost is irrelevant if we consider viruses to be alive or not, because like you said, they interact with things that we assume to be alive or so. Like my question is kind of pointless that I asked a while back. Yeah. So is, I mean, I know that you're pushing for this to happen, but like, have you seen like some, I don't know, headway, I guess, like to include viruses in, in the searches that's going on? I, I think there's always been people pushing for this um, within the NASA Astrobiology Institute until it was um, um, dismantled last year and switched into these networks. Um, I started working a lot with uh, Ken Sedman, who's a virologist at Portland State University, um, Penny Boston, which was the head of the NASA Astrobiology Institute. They have always cared about viruses and Ken particularly does viruses in extreme environments. One of his favorite field sites is Lassen in Northern California here. And he looks at viruses in these hot springs in these extreme environments. And it's cool. There's so many things we can think about how they're surviving. What, what are they doing that's different, right? And anything could be an extreme environment. I argue that soil is an extreme environment. So th there, there is headway because over time, there is someone that's been chirping and chirping and chirping. And... More recently, viruses have been included, but a lot of times they're included because people are interested in looking at viruses for the origin of life, which is another our highly debated topic. But if we think about the RNA world hypothesis, which is um, RNA was the main thing that life arose from and DNA came later, right? And we think this because this ribosomes RNA can act on themselves, they can catalyze reactions, and da da da. So if you just think about, and I'm not in support of this, this is just another idea. I don't like to close my mind to ideas. 
But if I think about something from simple to complex, which is not always right, I would think you have nucleic acid. So you'd have RNA, right? Then you'd have RNA that's wound up. So then we have DNA. And then you have amino acids. Okay, when amino acids come together, then it's a protein, right? You put amino acids or proteins around nucleic acid, that's a virus. So why would you jump to a cell all of a sudden, right? So for me, the virus in the scenario came first. Not me not arguing that. I'm just, that's something to think about that I think people overlook, is that we already know there's amino acids. We already know there's nucleic acid. You just put one around the other, you have a virus. That, that's that. Um, so there's different hypotheses. There's like the virus first hypotheses, and there's other ones too where viruses came later. There's a lot of evidence that people have shown where viruses are actually new and emerging. With eukaryotes, viruses are newer. They are coming out of these eukaryotes living their lives, and viruses are just spontaneously being made out of this, right? And there's there's other ways besides that, but I'm not an expert on this. I don't do eukaryotic viruses, um, but the, the main focus is looking at RNA viruses, right? So a lot of people care about them for the origin of life. And I think it's important just because they're so simple and complex at the same time. And if you think about the ingredients for life and you burn them together, you can have a virus along the way. So viruses have been written in to NASA for looking at a prebiotic chemistry, right? This early earth. And I think they're important there because I think they can be helpful for developing an early atmosphere as well. We already talked about how they influence photosynthesis. Um, they can influence denitrification, methanogenesis, right? So they have this influence there. So viruses are critical for studying anything related to life. I was caring more as well that we are going to be making more instruments that are going to be tuned for viruses as well. And then when we are searching, we're going to just include viruses. And it's not just this one aspect. It's actually, my goal is to push viruses in everything of NASA. That's the goal. We talked about early Earth. That's one. We talked about the search for life. That's two. Understanding signatures and gases. That could just be on Earth as well. That's three. In general ecology. Another one that I think is a big topic is the idea of people going to space. So when you go to space, the microgravity space itself, that is a very harsh condition. And we see this when we see astronauts come back, their bodies are different. You think of bone density, you think of just overall well-being, you think of mental stability, right? Now let's think about viruses where you have people that can have chickenpox and then it goes away, but it's a latent virus, you have it in you. You can get shingles later on. Now you go to space, and all of a sudden you come back and you get shingles. What is that about? These conditions of looking at when people or things go into space, how the virus react? They react differently. The viruses, when they're in space, they immediately know something's going on if I'm personifying them here. And so they act differently. So will cocktails, will medications, if you have suppressions for HIV, will these all work the same? This is stuff we need to study if we're going to start sending people into space. Should we care and be worried if you send somebody to space and they have a virus in them, what's going to happen to them for the rest of their lives? I think of this as space biology and human health and looking at viruses in this aspect. And this is also work that's being done. And this is all work that I think in general needs to be brought into limelight and focused more on. Yeah, like, so one of the things that sparked in my head when you said that was they took those two twins whose names I cannot remember right now, where they had like one in space for a year and then one here and they did all these like repeat measurements over time. I didn't actually see what ended up happening, but you know, like, but that's only one aspect of it. And it's certainly not perfect, right? Because how many, how many twins are you going to get to convince to do this, right? <laughs> so I think they did a great job with it. But in that perfect scenario, both twins wouldn't have gone into space, right? You would have one that never gone into space and one just in space. I, their overall finding was the, there was a difference in the DNA. So going into space changes your DNA. Now, whether it matters, whether it gets fixed, whether something happens, there's still work being done on this, right? Yeah. But I just remember the headlines like, uh, different DNA, twin is no longer twin, different uh, mutations, <laughs> right? Oh, that's funny. I didn't see any of those headlines. That's funny. <laughs> oh, I, I find a lot of the crazy stuff. It's like when I, it's probably I was talking about Ken, when he published a paper about 
astrobiology, which is the idea of just studying viruses and the potential that they could be elsewhere. People are like, space viruses, killer viruses from elsewhere. And like, oh, what if we bring a virus back that's going to kill us? And yeah, but there's a lot to think about. You just have me thinking too, is think about for agriculture. If we take plants in space, because we're trying to make something habitable, viruses infect plants. They, they're actually quite beautiful. If you look at viruses infecting plants, you get all these cool designs. Um, You can get spots and circles and swirls and everything and how much photosynthesis they can do. This is all impacted. So this is, there's just a lot to be studying out there. A lot of times when I think about outer space, I just think about various sci-fi books I've read. (laughs) And I think a lot of sci-fi just takes for granted, yeah, we can figure out how to grow plants in space and it'll be fine. (laughs) But maybe it's not so simple because there's a lot we don't know, like you said. Well, it's because when we're ignorant, you say one plus one is two. At that level, it makes sense and you want to go forth. But then when you think about the plant, the plant is its own ecosystem. It has its cell wall which distinguishes the inside from the outside. So there are two very different habitats. You have things moving in there, like highways, right? So it's its own little city in there. So you, I think it's naive for us to just think, oh, we'll take it in space and be fine. But it's not to stop us from trying, though. I think that's important. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Do you have anything else you want to talk about? Um, viruses, Hunt for Life, NASA, something else anywhere? <laughs> when I push viruses I just I like I didn't just become a virologist one day I studied the environment I loved environmental science I cared about our planet I focused on climate change a lot it was my my bread and butter I went into microbiology because I knew that that was going to be our solution for climate change microbes no matter what we do obviously we're changing the environment but and we're definitely changing on a huge scale but microbes are just doing so much. And I think they are the key for finding biotechnology to help us, whether it's alternative fuels, whether it's cleaning up, remediation, anything like that. I think microbes are the key. And I wanted to understand more microbes, which is why I went into microbiology. And I continued to study microbiology during my master's. And I love polar environments. I love extreme environments, It's my thing. But then I got into viruses later on. So it's not like I've always been gung-ho viruses. And viruses were like that same paradigm shift in my head where I care about climate. I saw microbes affected it. So then I care about microbes as well. Well, now I saw the viruses affect microbes. So then that's why it's that. And so when I talk to microbiologists and the people out there, the thing I try to say is don't, don't just disregard viruses. And of course, I'm not going to be the person who said, oh, the viruses matter. It's only the virus. A virus is only as important as its host. It has to use its host, right? So I'm just saying, when you're thinking about your variation, think about if the virus can help explain that. There's been great work by Britt Koskela and some others where they're showing where if you're looking at your organism, whether it's a plant, whether it's microbe, uh, the variation is better explained when you incorporate viruses. I think this is important and this is really cool. So don't just throw the viruses out. Obviously, you don't have to make them your cornerstone. But if you see something that's interesting, a quick check to see what viruses are doing or a follow-up to see if viruses have an impact. I think that's key. So I, I just, whenever I talk to people or they have a cool, exciting result or something, like, well, what's the virus doing? And that's what I'll continue to say. Yeah, I mean, I think that gets to the point where, like, everything is connected in some way it you know and that varies depending on like the scale at which you're looking but like if you have like one little pot of soil that's its own system and everything's interacting in there even or like a big rainforest or a wetland or something you know oh i do actually have one more question you said that you do a bit of outreach and i was curious what kind of outreach you do yeah so this is something that's been disappointing for me is my outreach has definitely decreased and it's been partially because uh, I'm further along in my career, and it's harder, but it's also because my home life has developed more. I have two kids now, so that if my outreach it usually consists of me trying to do stuff with them as well. So it's all together. That's usually what happens. But I, uh, so for me growing up, I was never part of a science family. I was never, school was never pushed, right? It was never like, hey, you should make sure you go to class. I would skip class and stuff. It's just never a big deal. I think it started becoming 
more important when I was in high school and I wanted to do something in my life. And I saw a lot of the people that I knew that had the same kind of lifestyle I had, they weren't happy. They weren't doing stuff they wanted to. And I've always been a curious person. So I pushed myself into college and going into college, I realized that things that helped me the most were the outreach experiences. Like that, that's exactly what it was. If I had never gone to my outreach, the events that they had outreach for, I would have never got excited about science. I would have never joined my first undergrad lab. Had I not done that, I would have never gone to grad school, right? It's all connected. And I think it's important to get people excited because until you know, it just seems so complex and there's so much to do in our lives, so much to think about health, family, friends, politics, there's just so much, it, you're, you get exhausted. So when something is delivered to you, it becomes easier. And that's what outreach is. It's making these events, things you can do that's fun for kids. And not everyone can afford to go to a science museum. Not everyone has those parents that help them with that. So a lot of the outreach events I've done have been specifically targeting um, communities and groups that would not be helped by the normal services that are out there. So when I was in Tucson, Arizona for my um, PhD at the beginning, before I moved, I worked with a group called Mesa, which was helping um, inner city kids, trying to help get them <clears throat> in these neglected groups. So as a largely uh, native students um, and then poor students really, and that, that's what it is. They just didn't have the same opportunities. So we would just, we have what's called science, Saturday Science Academy. And we set different events where they would do soil texturing just to play with soil and realize, cool, you can make ribbon stuff. And I can, you can tell things about the soil just by playing with it. That's, that's so cool. And about hydrology, it's all around earth sciences to just really understand the environment. Um, I've had so many different ones, but I mean, like another good one to highlight is, this is by far my favorite outreach experience was when I was selected, when I was at University of Arizona, they have a, a program called the Sky School. And I absolutely love this. So Sky Schools are these environments that is just different. If you think of it, it's like an island. This area is different than everything around it. So in Tucson, you have the Sonoran Desert there. It's this hot desert. But the Catalina Mountains are there, and there's Mount Lemon. So you can take this 45-minute drive up this mountain, several thousands of feet up, and now you have this forest where you have Douglas firs, ponderosa pines, you have aspens, you have all these beautiful animals up in this forest. And then you look down around you and you're like, this is all desert around me. That's insane, right? So what we would do is we would start at the base in this desert that they know, and then we'd stop along the way up at various points so they could see where's the last cactus growing. And guess what? It can't grow above this spot now because the climate's changing, right? Oh, what vegetation are we seeing now? What are the differences we're seeing in the animals all along the way up there? Even the geology is incorporated, just like looking at this for these students. And these would be one to five day events. And what I liked about it is even though it took place in Tucson, we would get schools in from all over the country that they could sign up for one to five day events. And at the top, Something that the University of Arizona is known for is for its um, astronomy. Like they up on Mount Lemmon, they look for what's called near Earth objects. And the vast majority of them are actually found there because they have such good telescopes and they have that phenomenal mirror lab that's below the stadium there. Um, so you can go up there. We look at the night sky. We learn about asteroids, comets, the differences, what a meteorite is, what's the difference between a meteorite, a meteorite, and a meteor, right? There's these small differences. Um, you learn about the ecology, and it was just, it was a group of PhD students, and I focused on microbiology. We had someone that focused on earth sciences or geology. You have hydrology, and we break them out into groups, and they do the science project for one to five days, and then they present a poster on it. And it's just so cool. We just take them on a hike around so the outdoors and a natural learning environment, just soaking up everything. And it's an environment that they may not necessarily get. Now, this is not necessarily catered just for um, less privileged communities. That is whoever wants to sign up, right? So that's the only caveat with that. But it, it was still such a rewarding experience to be able to do that. 
Yeah, that's so cool. I, I've actually spent some time in that area of Arizona and like, I think they call them the sky islands, right? It's like these mountains mm -hmm. here and mountain there. It's just so yep. freaking cool. <laughs> like I did, I actually did a Knowles backpacking trip down that way um, a couple years ago in, on one of the sky islands. I don't know the name of it at the moment, but that's just so cool. And it's cool that I had never been down there. It's cool that uh, there's this program taking people out there. Yeah. And, and so just to finish um, and bring it back to what I'm doing now, uh, I've been trying to work with LLNL, which is the Lawrence Livermore National Lab that I work for. They, the, to be honest, the kids in the Bay Area are very privileged. And what's so great is stuff I never had growing up is they have all these national labs and these things nearby that are helping convey science to the public. Like this is phenomenal. These are opportunities I would have never had. And when I did uh, a fellowship at the Joint Genome Institute, which is part of Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, right? So subtle differences. They had high school interns there and stuff. And I was like, what? In high school, I would have never been doing this. And so, but uh, getting back to Lawrence Livermore, um, they have this, um, I'm blanking on the name right now, of course. Uh, it's on the east side of campus. But it's, I think it's called the LVOX, the Livermore Valley Open Campus. So the national um, lab, not everyone can come on, right? You have to get through security and stuff. But on the east side, there's a whole portion that's open to public. And they have a science museum. And they have labs, like chemistry labs and these wet labs where we can host events. And one that we recently did, which I absolutely loved, it was different because of COVID-19, of course, but if, imagine if COVID-19 wasn't around, what would be happening? You bring these teachers in from around the community and I teach them about viruses so that way they can teach their students. And you have to think about how rewarding this is for the teacher, where they're told to teach a bunch of things and they obviously can't do it all. So a lot of times they have to pick and choose and they didn't research it. So what they teach is what they know or what they're able to read up on and it you know, we don't work by osmosis. It's not like, boom, right? We, we just assimilate and get it. So there's going to be knowledge gaps. And of course, things are going to be taught wrong. And science takes a while to trickle down. I mean, I remember when I was in high school, we were still learning about the five kingdoms and plants and fungi were basically the same thing. And I was like, ah, oh, this, this has been known for like forever. And I was learning this in the early 2000s. What the heck? And we didn't even learn about archaea, and that's been known since the, the, the 1990s, the late 1980s, if you want to say. But so it was so great to have all these teachers across the country and in the area just learn about viruses. And my goal when this is all over is to be able to have these in-person meetings where they come in, we can do wet lab things, where I can teach them about viruses and teach them how to teach viruses, because viruses are not taught well in our high schools. Right, microbiology is kind of touched upon, and we talk about bacteria a little bit, and it's focused on pathogens, and then boop, that's it. And if you think about the viruses you've been taught, they've just been the pathogens. And in the public, one thing I pick up on is there's not a clear understanding of the exact difference of a fungus, what the heck archaea is, a bacteria versus a virus. Uh, that's why people are like, I'm sick, I'll take antibiotics, even though they don't affect viruses at all, because I have no idea, right? And that's something I think that needs to be taught better. And I love that there's this teacher program where we can help teach the teachers so that way they don't have to use their time and resources to go figure out on their own and they're supported. Yeah, we also didn't learn about Archaea. Is I even say that right in school? Yeah. Yeah, yeah not a thing. It's probably also yeah. partly why I had so many ridiculous questions to ask you about things. I'm like, I just don't know. Like, it's not a thing I ever learned in school. Well, maybe when this pandemic is over, you can, you can get back to doing that because it sounds awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do enjoy my, my outreach. And I think I'm definitely in an area where a lot can be done, which is nice. Mm -hmm. um, it's those experiences. Everyone has that moment where, how did you get where you are? Who was that influence, that person that pushed you? Maybe it wasn't a single person. Maybe it was a lot of little events. But it's those events that shape us. And yeah. so I want to do more. Yeah, totally. I could tell you exactly where I pivoted. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going that way. <laughs> And I can tell you exactly who was there too, you know. I think what I've discovered from talking to so many people for this podcast is that on the surface, I think 
you know, maybe from the outside, it looks like it's very linear, like the way people get where they are, but it's definitely not that. It just looks like that in hindsight, maybe. Um, but it definitely wasn't, doesn't seem to work that way, at least for most people. Um, some people do have a very definite plan. I am not one of those people. <laughs> um, when I think when you see it too, our mind distills everything, right? So you yeah. see, oh, I connect the dots. They went here, then here, then there. Oh, that makes sense. They, they had planned out. No way. <laughs> like, no. if I even talk about my career, I'm like, how did I end up here? And sometimes I have those anxiety attacks where you're like, if one thing had changed, I wouldn't be where I am today. Like, I can point to different events that really impacted me. I'm like, man, the chance of the happening, that was just crazy. Yep. And, yep. yeah. Well, if it makes you feel any better, as pretty much everybody I've talked to, only like three people have had like a very specific plan and followed that plan. <laughs> and I, again, I'm not one of those people. Well, okay. sometimes that's, that is what it is, though. And to be truthful, like, if I didn't end up where I am, would I have been happy? Absolutely. Because if you think about when we're younger, we're so, so much more creative. And as we get older, we definitely get less creative, no matter what anyone says. Even if you're an artist, you're becoming less creative, right? Our imagination is shrinking. Um, when you're first going to college and high school, you had so many things that make you happy. And then you argue, well, that actually wouldn't have made me happy. And I think it would have made you happy if you had done it. Like for me, if I stuck with just studying climate change, it, like originally I was going to be a soil scientist maybe. And I was like, I would have been happy doing that. Right. Um, or if I just studied hydrology, right. I would have been happy with that. When I, I mean, these are things I think I would have been happy with. It's just hard to tell because you are so happy with what you do now. You're like, no, that couldn't make me as happy. Yeah, so. I totally understand. I also am like, well, there's a lot of things that I think are cool. And I think I would just be happy if what I was, if I was interested in what I'm doing and also didn't hate my coworkers. <laughs> so. well, actually, that's a huge part is yeah. who you work. With, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, I look at times when I'm unhappy with my work and it's usually because of my surroundings. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have times where I'm just like, oh my God, I've been doing the same work for 10 years, but then I'm in the field with one of my closest friends. So it's fine. At any rate, it has been so great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Hey all, it's Rachel. Thank you so much for listening. So here is where you can find us. You can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. Um, there's no Twitter page for the podcast because I didn't want to manage a bunch of Twitters. So since the podcast is an extension of me, find the podcast on Twitter at Flying Cypress, which is me, Rachel Villani. Also, if you're on Facebook, you can find the podcast at Storytellers of STEM on Facebook, STEM with two M's. Um, everything we talk about, I will be shared in the Facebook page and also on Twitter, like I said. So go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter. Um, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy. Enjoy.